0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
1: Kirsty Abbott is a zoologist who specialises in ants. She's an ant scientist. I think her job would have to be great because ants are so weird. They've got this incredible relative strength. They divide their labour. They communicate in a very sophisticated way through scent. But to me, the weirdest thing is it's not really clear to me what an ant is. Should we see a single ant as an individual, or would it be better to see a single ant as a tiny component of a whole colony? Is it the colony that's the real individual? When you see them infesting your house, they look like they're getting their orders from somewhere, don't they? Kirsty Abbott is a zoologist at the University of New England, and she's the coordinator of a citizen science project called the School of Ants. In fact, she is the Queen Ant of the School of Ants. Ants are the subject of intense study because, well, they get around and ant species can invade new territory and islands, set up a new colony and roll right over the landscape like a marching carpet. But they do have a role in the larger ecology as predators, as pest controllers and soil engineers. Hello, Kirsty.
0: Hi, Richard.
1: When you study ants under the microscope, how do they change? Like, we don't really see them under the microscope. We see them as these annoying little dots marching across our kitchen or something like that. How do they change when you look at them under a microscope?
0: They change for the better, I would argue. You're right. We do see ants as annoying little things that we take for granted in our lives, particularly as Australians. They're everywhere. And I don't think many people really pick them up and even get a really a close-eye view. So under a microscope, it's like taking your little black annoying dots of dirt and turning them into enormous B-grade movie character. Yes. They have amazing spines, hairs, rivets, divots in their and colours in their exo skeleton. They have shapes that you couldn't actually really imagine and when I look at them under a microscope, anyway, I think I could probably stare at one ant for probably a good three or four hours and imagine exactly what that, that morphology or that spine is has evolved to do, the function of it, what's that massive sting for, what, how does the gastro or the abdomen expand, how does it, it, it. For me, it throws up a whole heap of questions, not least imagine what it would be like if they were the size of elephants. Yes, yeah, so that's,
1: well, that's right. We, we, we wouldn't be here, would we? <laughs>
0: Absolutely they, not. They'd be running the,
1: running the place, wouldn't they? They do seem despite their tiny size, they do seem to have an intelligence about them. They seem to know exactly what they're doing. Or is that just me going crazy there? No,
0: no actually, no. Ants go crazy too. They go crazy with uh, information transfer. They're intelligent because they're continually receiving information from their sisters. They have an incredible rate of interaction, of touch. They use their antennae, which they can... Uh, sense chemicals, pheromones that transfer information as well as their feet Uh, and on their exoskeleton they actually have a whole heap of chemicals, hydrocarbons and other kind of chemicals that tell people or tell tell the other ants, their sisters, what's going on. So when they pass each other by, you might notice that they get their little antennae out and touch each other and they, what's called antennation,
1: And grope each other. And
0: groping each other, Mm. biting each other's legs sometimes, things like that. But what they're really doing is they're talking and and they're transferring information. So you can imagine as the density of ants increases in a colony, the rate of interaction increases as well and so the rate of information transfer increases and so everybody knows what's going on all the time and how can that not translate into a remarkable intelligence really of a, of what i mean edward o wilson the guru of ants in the world has called a super organism for that very reason yeah
1: a super organism yeah. yes that's that's where the kind of the the line between the individual and the and the the hive mind gets gets a bit very very blurry
0: it is um, yeah
1: I know they're eaten in parts of the world, like Mexico and parts of Thailand. Have you eaten them?
0: Yes. Recently, in Re- fact. Recently? Recently. Last year, I was teaching an entomology subject, Insect-Plant Interactions, at University of New England, and um, Nigel Andrew, one of my colleagues, and I are very into entomophagy. It's what I call in- eating insects. Right. And so, I just thought, it's <laughs> it's actually compulsory, I think, for anybody studying entomology to have to eat them. Why? <laughs> well... It, there's a massive movement to eat insects across the world because they're so high in protein. Yeah. I think they take uh, red meat protein levels something below 10% or something like that. Uh, using insects in a food can actually boost that protein content up to 17%.
1: Yeah, there was a TV series called How Eating Insects Can Save the World, wasn't oh, there? Yeah. yeah.
0: And not only we eating insects, but using them for pellet, chook food, rabbit food, any kind of um, food that you feed pets and things like that.
1: So, so, so eating some are better than others, I'm guessing here, when it comes to ants. Though. Yes. Um, um, are they flavoursome, dare I ask?
0: Well, green tree ants in North Queensland, uh, the Aboriginals use to flavour water and food as a citric flavour. They have, uh, their abdomens are full of acid, uh, which tastes kind of, you can make lemonade. Um, and in fact, if you go to Cairns or North Queensland somewhere, grab a green tree ant, hold it, it it might little bite, but it won't be bad, and just eat off its abdomen, and it'll leave a tiny little sting of kind of citric flavour on what? your tongue.
1: The, uh, really? Yeah, so really. Aboriginal people use use these ants to give some lemony goodness. Lemony their, goodness in, in their in their drinking water. Yes. Oh my God. Right. So 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 there are condiments then. They can be used as a condiment.
0: Condiments in fa- so. Uh, the, the lemony flavour with green tree ants. Uh, there's a species of ant called honeypot ants, which are in Central Australia, but are also through Central America. And their workers are called repletes. And really, it's because they're full of honey. They, they act as storage for condiments, for honey, for sugar, really, to keep the colony going. And the workers hang from uh, the top of the nest chamber. And their abdomens are so enormous that they look like really a big balloon of honey and they're there for storage of sugar and you know in uh, unpredictable times in desert and dry areas so that they have a storage of sugar so that's another condiment and then you can have crunchy ants so the small black ones which you might fry or dry and they become really more of a texture adder and protein enhancer if you like
1: so you, so you want to eat them as a kind of scientific duty but do you, ever, do you ever get to the point where you go oh i wouldn't mind a bit of ant right now <laughs> do you ever do that
0: no, oh, look, not to yet, be honest, not quite I there yet.
1: Right? Okay, okay, it's so not quite there yet. Uh, when, when before you, before you were coming on, uh, my producer Jenna and I were getting really interested in this whole ant thing. And she read somewhere that if you got all the ants in the world and put them in a big bag, and then you got all the humans in the world and put them in a big bag, it would weigh, weigh roughly the same. The biomass of the two would be rough. Can that possibly be true?
0: It's absolutely true, and in fact, it totally points to the importance and the ubiquity of ants in the world. I, you know, humans are very arrogant, right? Where you know where every we've changed the landscape uh, we've completely altered an entire ecosystems but ants have been doing this far longer than we have they're in every habitat in the world except for Antarctica and Arctic Circle or in the ice, basically, they have evolved and radiated to cope with heat, to cope with cold, to cope with big ants and smaller ants, to cope with, um, like to eat underground things, uh, roots of trees, for instance. There's lots of ants that specialize who are basically blind, who specialize underground that we don't even see, uh, and right up to, in fact, this bull ant that I've got here in a vial, which is one of Australia's biggest ants, who essentially is a solitary predator, and the biomass of that I mean is quite big really uh who walks sort of over this over a planar environment so you've got right from that big thing with a massive sting massive mandibles right down to tiny tiny half a millimeter of ants and if you think of a colony of ants having anything from a couple of hundred ants to a couple of million ants and you might have a couple of million colonies in say 100 hectares yes it's
1: possible (laughs) how much of your life have you spent counting ants (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh, I don't. I don't think about that actually. Well, I started uh, looking at ants in earnest when I started a PhD on Christmas Island, so that was two thousand. So I'd say pretty much. 15 years straight.
1: <laughs> you can get these super colonies of ants, and uh, I believe there was one in Melbourne in 2004 that was discovered that went for about 100 kilometres across the city, apparently. Oh, yeah, super yeah. colonies. It's yeah. an
0: Argentine ant. In fact, the work that was done on that, you you might define a super colony as, as lots of different ants' nests and colonies being genetically related. And in fact, the whole of Melbourne was genetically related, this Argentine ant, and colonies in Adelaide, and colonies in Perth, so actually, Richard, the super colony, went across spanning the entire country. Wow!
1: So, so these colonies, right? So they're like parallel cities in a way, aren't they? Almost underneath, the, underneath our own.
0: They're like having cousins and sisters all over the country.
1: What's it like for you to stand in the middle of a, a, a gigantic colony of ants when they're scurrying all over the place?
0: Well, yellow crazy ants, so Anoplolepis gracilipes, the introduced ant I studied, and I've studied mostly uh, on Christmas Island, and on Christmas Island they have formed super colonies with unprecedented densities so super colonies there can range from a sort of a a 20 meter square area which is quite small right up to 800 hectares of three-dimensional moving ants so if we imagine the studio every surface in this studio covered with a carpet of ants yeah yeah (laughs) it was like that for 800 hectares in some of these super colonies so when you walk into the super colony, you literally have ants boiling up your um, up your legs. Um, up your don't... legs?
1: This is this is your experience? Yeah,
0: yeah. So I spent three years in this, and and in fact, I had to make a conscious decision to do it because yellow crazy ants, they actually go crazy when you disturb them. So if you breathe on them, or you walk through them, or something like that. They they run erratically. They go crazy, and and so it actually makes it more likely to walk over you. And when I first started my PhD, I walked into this crazy ant colony and super colony, and I was trying to count ants on a tree trunk, and I couldn't breathe on them, I, because they would just go crazy, and I couldn't count them. So what I had to do was <laughs> look at the tree trunk, look at exactly where I wanted to count, breathe in, yes. count the ants. <laughs> Turn away, breathe out, and then do repeat. And I remember thinking in the first three weeks actually of being in these super colonies, I don't know if I can do this. If you've got them all over you, it's like having mosquitoes that you want to slap everywhere. And I really had to make a conscious decision to just zen out with it. Really? Yeah. Right, so,
1: you, so you just have to have accept that there are thousands and thousands of ants, ants crawling over every bit of your, your outfit, whatever that is, and just accept that?
0: Yes, pretty much. When we first uh, went into the rainforest as well in these super colonies, we were trying to work out how to wear our clothes. And we thought that maybe tucking our trousers into our socks would be the best uh, strategy so that they didn't run up our trousers. But actually, what it meant was that ants could get down in between our socks and our shoes i <laughs> And yellow crazy ants are formacene ants, so they have a storage gland of formic acid in their abdomen and they spray as their defence strategy. And so what they did was when they built up in but in the hundreds of thousands between our socks and our shoes, they sprayed formic acid and actually we sort of were getting first and second degree burns around our ankles literally by how many ants they were there.
1: You had all this acid sloshing around in your acid shoes?
0: Acid shoes, yeah, yeah. At that point you go, why do I do this again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Character building. That's what my mum always said.
1: Do ants have brains? individual ants?
0: Look, invertebrates, uh, it, it's a bit of a subject for discussion actually, and in, and an ethical one too, because if invertebrates and ants and insects had brains like we would, we wouldn't be allowed to kill and do research on them like we do. So in fact, defining their level of nervous system development is important in being able to do a lot of research on them. They do, but it's essentially an uh, an enlarged ganglia, if you like, a neural centre for controlling their movements uh, and information transfer, you know, uh, de- production of their chemicals um, and, and altruism, I guess, if you like. So a lot of behavioural centres as well. But it's, look, it, no invertebrate has a brain like us.
1: What are their eyes like?
0: Well, they vary. As I said, I think some of the ones in the soil have no eyes. There's no need to see anything. Uh, they, As I said, they ants live in a chemical world, so they're sensing everything they need to sense through chemicals on their exoskeleton in the soil and by touching other ants around them.
1: All right, so their sense of smell, their scent, or scent, is um, more, much more powerful and Absolutely. More, more significant. But Absolutely, and they the find ones-
0: food like that. But if you have a look at this bull ant in front of you as well, they've got some of the biggest eyes of all ants and that's because they're predators. So they have to be able to see those big things that that they chase. And just like any insect, they have compound eyes um, and are able to see things in almost in a 360 degree space, depending on where they're placed on their heads.
1: They all have different roles in the colony. I think we're all familiar with that. There's workers and there's soldiers. There's a queen right in the middle of it. How many queens will a colony have? Just the one?
0: Oh no. Well the perception is that all ant colonies, and I like bees and wasps and termites, have one queen. But in fact, you know, of the over fifteen thousand species of ants in the world that we even know of, we think there's many more. Nearly every single species will have a different strategy, a different division of labour, and a different way they divide the types of ants in the colony. So you can have one queen, like in a bull ant nest, and say a hundred workers. They don't have any soldiers. Workers function as soldiers and defence as well as nurses in the in the Nurses? Nest. Yeah, so you've got nurses. Young ants are usually nurses and they look after the eggs and the larvae in the nest. And then as they get older and usually become a little bit more dispensable, then they go out and uh, forage for food, uh, which is one of the, the most important tasks, I would argue, uh, and defend the colony as well. So yes, most Uh, colonies have a queen, workers, some sort of defence system or soldiers. But in the case of yellow crazy ants, and again, completely anomalous and uh, totally different to most species, is I found, we broke open a big log. We were like, oh, this is a massive nest. We broke it open and got one of our garden vacuums that we collected Colonies with. And we started vacuuming up into these little bags, ants and queens. And we're like, gee, there's a lot of queens in here. Oh, and we, every time we'd open the nest a little bit further, there was another one. And we vacuumed out 1,500 queens, and there were still just as many in there. 1,500 queens? 1,500.
1: Wow, who's doing all the work? Yeah, <laughs> good
0: question. If,
1: if, all these, if all these women are lying around having <laughs> a good time,
0: having a good time pumping yeah. out eggs, can you imagine if there's 1,500 right. queens, how many workers they're pumping out? And so how this contributes to the density of crazy ants. So, so does that
1: mean if you're finding that many queens there's going to be this vast vast network of uh, supporting ants that you just couldn't see in the environment around these queens to sustain them?
0: Well we could see them. That's the moving carpet of ants on Christmas Island. But yeah in, nor- in normal cases huge number of queens you'd have trails and other ants supporting them. Yep.
1: I am with Kirsty Abbott who is a zoologist who specialises in ants she's a zoologist and ant scientist at the University of New England is it true that some male ants are born without mouths?
0: <laughs> yes. Right? I know, as a male, I'm sure it's hard to admit that.
1: It just sounds terrible. It just sounds, that's poor men, not being, well, look- to, not being able to complain. I mean, what do they do? Um, why don't they have mouths? Don't, don't they need to eat?
0: Well, no. The ones that are born without mouths don't, don't need to eat. So nearly every ant, I would argue that 99.9% of ants you will ever see in your lifetime, are female. The queens are female, all the workers are female, and males are actually only produced maybe once, twice, three times in a year. They are produced to mate, and that is it. They are redundant in terms of the cooperation of the colony. Absolutely. I
1: rather sexistly assumed that all those workers and soldiers were male ants. Ah, you're not
0: alone. Everybody does. Yeah. And in fact, we say, you know, oh, look at him, look at you know, isn't he clever? Or And I'm constantly correcting people. It's she, she. Look at that beautiful girl. See, there's a beautiful girl sitting there.
1: <laughs> Bloody men, hey? How about that? <laughs> really? So, so men are only, males are only a tiny p- a proportion of the population? Absolutely,
0: then. and they're not in the colony all year round either. They're really only literally produced to mate and then they die. And in, Look, I will say, in the, in a lot of the, cult, the Polynesian cultures I've worked in uh, with invasive ants, the, you know, the culture the people there almost refuse to believe it. How on earth could males be redundant and that females cooperate and, and form this society? So it's better
1: just not to have that conversation? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> we laugh and then I leave the room. Well, that's how it
1: is. That's, that's, that's science for you. There you are. Uh, you mentioned that they have this elaborate communication technique, the way of communicating through through scent and all that. Tell me how it works when, when you've got a forager ant that's going out looking for a food source and the, the ant then actually finds some food source. How does that ant let the rest of the colony know?
0: Ant colonies have what's called a scout or many scouts and their particular job is to go and find foods, food. And they go out of the nest without laying any sort of information trail normally. They or sometimes they'd lay a chemical trail from the ends of their abdomen so that they know where to go back. But they have pretty good sense of direction. Mm-hmm. So they go out and they're looking for two main sources of food. You've got a protein-type food, uh, and sometimes that can be a dead animal or another insect or something like that, which is really an unstable food source. It could be gone the next day, so they're looking for that. Or they're looking for something more carbohydrate-based or fats and lipids, which normally is a little bit more stable. It's usually associated with plants or an insect that's uh, stuck on a plant or something like that that produces honeydew. And when they find it, they turn around and... They put the end of their abdomen down on the ground and they secrete a chemical, which says, this is the type of food I've found, follow me, and I need this many workers to come and help me get it. And
1: and when does it do that? Does it it do that when it's going back to the colony?
0: Coming back so that they lay the information that all the other workers need from the colony. They get back there and say, hey, girls... Come with me in their chemical way, (laughs) Antonate, Antonate. And they recruit as many other workers as they need to either carry a big piece of, you know, solid food um, or to come and to get the food. Does that
1: signal say anything about the type of food that they find?
0: It does, and in fact, this is a really interesting area of research. We don't know enough about that, but we know that ants can differentiate between these really unstable big pieces of food that they need lots of workers now. Come, 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 this food's going to run out. I need you all now to carry it back to the colony. Or... I need. I need just a few of you because this is going to. This is our perpetual lolly shop over here, and we can we can keep this one going.
1: Do they have a kind of an emergency pheromone, something they secrete when they're in terrible trouble, when there's a great danger, like an all hand, you know, you know, warning, Will Robinson, danger, danger, that kind of a pheromone.
0: Absolutely. So one of my sisters has just died. Pheromone come over here and help me gather her up and take her to our cemetery, pheromone. Uh, and also another one of the, the colonies in danger, pheromone as well, and that's another recruitment-type pheromone which allows them to recruit soldiers or other workers that might then come and defend against, you know, whatever's kind of intruding.
1: Can we just go back a bit there? They have a my-sister-has-died message. <laughs> yeah. Seriously, they have yeah. this thing that says one of us is dead. Yeah. Uh, and that's not threat-related, it's just that she's she's dead. And then what? What, what, what? Why do they need to signal that? Why don't they just leave her there?
0: The problem with leaving a dead body is that it accumulates microorganisms, bacteria, fungus, which could threaten the colony. Um, and so what they do is they're kind of cleaning up their, their territory in a way. So they'll say they have chemicals on their exoskeleton, hydrocarbons, which say, I'm your sister or I'm not your sister. And if one of their – they antenate, antenate a dead body – Because workers die all the time. They don't live very long. And if it's one of their sisters, they say, okay, let's clean her up take it back to the cemetery, they've got trash piles and cemeteries.
1: What do you mean a cemetery? Yeah,
0: an ant cemetery to take potential pathogens and threats to the colony away into one spot so that they're not out um, out and about. Right, that's
1: like a necropolis in a, in a medieval town. Then. A you little know, bit. Yeah, they used to have these kind of, you know, cities of the dead, you know, burial places, which had to be outside the city limits, otherwise the, the town could get contaminated by the disease associated with a dying and decaying body. Absolutely. So the same, are
0: they? And same thing, ants have been doing it for millions of years before humans discovered that was the way to do it i mean on the other hand there are ants that say somebody's dead let's just come and eat her oh really <laughs> yeah they do they eat they eat their con sometimes it's literally for a big bit of a protein hit
1: right there's, there's no ceremony about the, the the carting away of the dead is there they're, they're, they're too pragmatic for that i not expect. that i've observed okay, yeah, right, fair, fair enough what happens when a female ant meets another female ant from another colony
0: so it's they, not her sister yeah so they antenate checking it out, getting the information, talking, who are you, where are you from, what do you do, what's your name, all those sorts How of things. How do they
1: know that? I mean, is it sent again, is it?
0: It's all sent. Uh, and so these hydrocarbons – So. The, the scent that they've got on their exoskeleton is partly genetic from their colony and it's partly also from their environment. So they pick up the scent of what they eat and the soil they're nesting in and things like that. So they've actually got a signature, uh, if you like, of their, on their entire exoskeleton that says, genetically, I'm not related to you and also I'm from another nest and I'm doing other things.
1: So what happens then when they know you are from somewhere else?
0: So, if in, so it's aggression. Sometimes it can range from a little bit of kind of just rearing back and going, oh my goodness run run, get out of here and then they separate right up to biting grabbing full-on fights rolling around ants who spray formic acid will lift their abdomens up over their heads or, f- or poke them underneath their bodies and just and spray I mean they're really just spraying acid at their enemy and this can go on until the death of both ants or one ant as well and we use this as a scale of relatedness in these super colonies as well to see how genetically related ants are to each other at a- this a- aggression scale
1: and does that happen on a meskar do you ever see like Ant battles like that, or is it always just just uh, one-off? Like
0: you no, know, I have seen I have seen ant battles absolutely by two really sort of solitary predator um, species that have very distinct colonies and who are quite aggressive. And in fact, E.O. Wilson wrote a book called Ant Hill, and he's been studying ants since he was about eleven years old, really. And he the first about fifty to eighty pages of the book is literally just describing this battle between these two colonies on the edge of a lake. It's remarkable.
1: Now, normally when I, I- Could be horribly wrong with this. It seems my understanding is that when two like uh, mammal species meet from two different tribes, if you like, meet one another, the result is nearly always either sex or death. Um, (laughs) You know, death. You know, threat to the from the outsider, but sex as well because it brings in genetic diversity. Mm. Uh, Does that happen with ants? Do they? I don't even know how they have sex with each other. Anyway, how does that happen? How do they bring genetic diversity back into the into the colony?
0: Workers are non-reproductive. Queens are the only ones that are reproduced. Right,
1: it's just death. Yeah, right. just pretty much.
0: Because okay. that's the division of labour, really. Workers are dispensable in a way that queens are not. So queens have to be protected. They're down in the nest. They're the ones that mate, go, found a nest, um... And pump out eggs for the rest of their life. Workers, non reproductive, go out and really their jobs are, as I said, the nursing and the finding food and the defence of the thing. So sex is impossible between two workers.
1: Where's the love? Where's the fun? It's just all work and no play, is it?
0: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But uh, the genetic diversity pit comes from when males are produced. There's a couple of different ways they can do it. Well, there's lots of different ways. Uh, When males are produced in the nest, you might. In fact, you will. Most Australians will know that there's uh, a nupt- what we call a nuptial flight, where queens are produced, males are produced. They both have wings. And at the same time, hundreds of them can boil up out of the nest, and you see them going to high ground and then flying off into the air. And the same species does this simultaneously, so that you really just kind of like coral spawning. You know, they release they release reproductives into the air. They find each other, they mate, they drop to the ground. When queens are mated, they lose their wings so that they can walk uh, to find a, a suitable nesting site. Males die, and there you have a little bit of genetic diversity. So they mix, kind of genetic diversity, mostly. In the air or somewhere else on the ground when they leave their natal nest.
1: It's fascinating. Have you seen this happen?
0: Yes. In fact, just recently, uh, where I live uh, along the, the road where my daughter's school is, um, we were at oh, it was a Christmas party or something at night anyway, and these Camponotus species, the big orange and black sugar ants that people see all the time, they were just about to have a nuptial flight, and I was stuck there completely, going, "Look at this, Look at this. Podcast. Broadcast.
1: This is Conversations with Richard Feidler.
0: Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app.
1: Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Now, ants do sting. We know that. Mm. Now, there is this pain index I've only just discovered called the, is it called the Schmidt Index? Is that what it's called? Yeah. Explain to me the Schmidt Index of insect pain <laughs> and how it works and how it's set up.
0: Okay. A researcher by the name of Justin Schmidt was interested in the physiological response to pain, basically, and also uh, how venom and different poisons can produce the pain. And this was a number of years ago. So actually what he decided to do is because the perception of pain differs and everybody has a slightly different pain threshold, he had to have some sort of baseline of uh, what that pain might be and, of course, it needed to be himself. So Justin Schmidt set about going, stinging himself, basically, getting stung by anything he could possibly get stung in the invertebrate world particularly. This is all invertebrates. So ants, wasps, hornets, jellyfish, uh, you name it, he has been stung by it. And then he rated it based on his own experiences, and then based on his research of how the, how the physiology physiology <laughs> changes. I, I prefer to call it like a squeal index. Yes,
1: I know. What a guy! Yeah. I mean, better that he should do it, I suppose. What, what, a, what a, a what a no, selfless, noble. <laughs> Thing to do. Just the sound from his lab each day must have been, ow, like that, <laughs> that every day. So, this is a, this pain scale operates on a scale of one to four. Where do ants fit generally on that scale? Anywhere and everywhere on it?
0: Yeah, so there's a number of subfamilies of ants that that uh, have different sort of defence mechanisms and things like that. Mermicine ants in the subfamily Mermicine, they are the ones with the stings, mainly Ponerines, and there's another few as well. But they're the ones with the massive stings. And so, not all ants sting. And the sting size varies depending on the size of the ants and also the venom gland or the poison gland in the abdomen varies as well. So there's a huge difference between a small tiny sting ant and, and say, this Mermesia brevi nota sitting in front of us that has... The bull ant. Yeah, massive bull ant. Enormous mandibles from which it can grab onto you and get leverage to then, in fact, the sting's gone on this one because it's already stung something, then jam in its, its sting like a hypodermic needle and inject the poison right into you.
1: And, and where is the stinger? Is it on the abdomen like a bee? Is it down yeah, the end there? Yeah, yep, right. absolutely,
0: right on the end.
1: And, and when it stings you, does it... The same thing happened to what happens to bees, which it tears out the guts and that's the end of the, the insect?
0: Not always. So red imported fire ants are a good example of an ant that can sting multiple times. Oh. And in fact, the Schmidt Index rates fire ants uh, right up there. They'd be up there around four uh, with a bullet ant from Central America, which is supposedly the most painful sting of any ant in the world. Really? Yeah. The,
1: re, and and that's why it's called the bullet ant? Bullet ant. Uh,
0: one of them, yeah, because it feels like a bullet and it can last for days. Not because and- it
1: looks like a bullet, because it feels like being shot.
0: Yeah, apparently. And it lasts for days? Days. Oh, ow. Well, red imported fire ants in Brisbane, I mean, you could get stung at any moment in a picnic around Brisbane if they weren't controlled. 20, 30 stings on your arm, and if you have an anaphylactic reaction to it, then of course, you know, that just takes it to the next level as well.
1: And your friend, Dr. Schmidt, (laughs) he let himself be stung by a ants. Yes. And he went, whoa. (laughs)
0: Yeah.
1: Wow. Hours. Eating, we see them carrying around crumbs, ants, everyday ants. What do they actually eat, though? Are they eating that crumb? What are they doing with that crumb?
0: Ants are actually liquid feeders. So or What are they
1: carrying crumbs around Yeah, for?
0: we see them carrying solid food around all the time and really what they're doing is extracting the liquid out of it or they take it somewhere until it becomes liquid and, and extract it. They've got a digestive system that really only allows them to, to digest this liquid stuff um, and they do liquid because they share food. They're truly social or eusocial insects and they're constantly sharing food throughout the colony. So they store, uh, they eat, they store a lot of the liquid in their crop. So,
1: so what do you they wait for the, cro- the, the crop? from such as it is to what rot is that what you mean sometimes
0: oh yeah become a little liquid bit art, um, or they have the ability to with their mandibles and mouth parts to extract liquid from that essentially like, kind of like a bit of a straw but they don't have straw mouth parts to get the liquid from that uh, and they're small right remember so it's small amounts of liquid so they the liquid enters their crop which is the storage part of their stomach and then a lot of that Depending on the nutritional needs of the queen, the colony and themselves, uh, they will regurgitate uh, and through a process called trophallaxis, they're sharing uh, food through the colony all the time. They feed the larvae in the nest and they're constantly feeding the queen and they're constantly feeding each other.
1: So from a really kind of naff human perspective, those crumbs, essentially they're getting crumbs waiting for them to get manky and liquidy. Ingesting the liquid and then vomiting it into the mouths yeah, of other ants. Yeah, in other pretty words.
0: much. Yeah, pretty much. And in fact, just recently there's been some really interesting research about the importance of this social sharing of food and how it might actually keep ants alive longer. There was a great headline that said, Lonely ants die young... And hungry, and what they discovered was that if they take ants away from their colony uh, and they're just by themselves, they go completely hyperactive and then run around like a complete crazy thing, and they looking for food or looking for their sisters, presumably if they're fed, they still eat the food, but they keep it in their crop. They don't ever digest it and they don't, they've they got nobody to share it with. And so they're not actually getting the goodies of the energy, yet they're running around manically. So there's a bit of an energy imbalance there. But also they think that there's microorganisms that are transferred between, between sisters during this process of trophallaxis. And they think that by not doing this, they accumulate pathogens and probably die quicker as well. So an ant by itself, for instance, this this one species of Camponotus, will, died in six days, and ants in the colony lasted for over 60, 65 days. Do so we, sh- yeah, food sharing is important.
1: Do they get parasites?
0: Yes, uh, yes. Some really cool ones, like body snatching B grade movie parasites. <laughs>
1: Tell me, give me the coolest ones, please.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> the coolest ones would have to be what creates what a, what's called a zombie ant, uh, and it's a para- it's a it's actually a a fungal infection, really, orpheocordyceps, which is a fungi uh, which parasitizes all insects but a lot of ants. The fungus actually infects the ants, controls its body, it essentially kills the ant itself and controls its behavior and its movements for wow. sometimes up to a week or two. And then it, when the ant finally dies, it grows its fungal spores out the top of the ant and releases and continues on its merry way. So that's a pretty cool, that's a zombie kind of thing. But there's another one, a nematode, that when it infects the ants, it essentially kind of goes to its brain and again, kind of turns it into a zombie. It changes its behaviour. It, it alters its nervous system so that the ant, and this is in Central America, the ant climbs a tree. When it's at the top of the tree, its abdomen goes bright red. looks like a berry, a piece of fruit that a that a bird would take. And it also causes the ab- it makes the ant go put its abdomen up in the air. It looks like a berry, bird takes, ant. Berry, and the nematode is then transferred into its next intermediate host, into the bird. Into the bird so what happens its- then?
1: What happens when it gets inside the bird?
0: The ant dies. The nematode continue its- it continues its life cycle inside the bird. The bird poos it out, and there you go. The nematode has just reproduced successfully while parasitizing and and killing a, a poor unsuspecting ant. How
1: annoying for the ants. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's, that's 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 terrifying. You you obviously wanted to be a science, scientist from an early age, Kirsty, and uh, tell me about your first PhD you were pursuing in Cairns.
0: I wanted to be involved in a, a tropical pest management in natural areas type thing. There was I was working in the cotton industry and I really wanted to pursue research in science. I looked for a PhD and an ad came up for a a position, a PhD position, on the canopy crane. So up in the daintree rainforest in the Wet Tropics National Park, uh, Wet Tropics World Heritage, they uh, constructed a tower crane, 55 metres in the air, massive booms, so that it allowed you three dimensional access to the rainforest canopy, and I just went. That's what I want to do. That's that's for me. I can that sounds learn pretty about nice, yeah. being up in a
1: rainforest canopy on a on a crane. That sounds oh,
0: fantastic. Yeah, with Cape Tribulation and the daintree as your office view from the the crane. It was yeah, it was fabulous. So I said, okay, let's do this. I want to learn about plant insect interactions in the rainforest canopy. We got up there and there was another girl that uh, also started a PhD at the same time. And about three weeks into our um, PhD, uh, Cyclone Rona hit North Queensland. And it actually ripped like a torrent down the exact valley that this canopy crane was in. And overnight, well, within hours, turned our beautiful, pristine World Heritage Area into matchsticks. And it was pretty devastating. (laughs) It was really devastating, actually. And we went up um, a few days after the cyclone had gone through and we just sort of looked up into the valley and went, what can we do? It's just a completely ruined... um, after that, it was, a, it was a bit of a struggle actually to get going. We all wanted to do research on succession of plants and insects in the rainforest after a, a massive natural disturbance like that. Um, but in fact, I got to about nine months into it and through a combination of factors, through lack of uh, management uh, clashes with supervisors, the wrong direction, the wrong people working in the same area, I decided that it wasn't actually going to be the PhD I thought it was and... Um, and I decided to quit it, which was an incredibly difficult decision.
1: So, you went to Christmas Island instead. Now, we've been talking a bit about this earlier on. Uh, Christmas Island was being infested by yellow crazy ants. Mm. Or was it was a crazy yellow ants. I'm not quite sure One yellow of them. Yellow ants. crazy ants. Yellow crazy ants. Tell me about what was happening there and what, why that was such a, a kind of
0: radical event. My supervisors had been working on the island for a, a couple of decades, actually, looking at how the Christmas Island red crab, which you might be familiar with, mm. structures the rainforest. So it's a, it's what's called a keystone species. It uh, it actually lives in the forest. There's hundreds. Or- 80, 90 million odd of them on this 134 square kilometre island and they eat seeds and seedlings uh, and leaf litter and they structure the rainforest so they they've built this unique ecology on the island and during the 1990s on research trips over there my supervisors discovered that there was something different going on there was seedlings coming up where they shouldn't have been coming up there were dead crabs on the forest floor and it took them a while to key into the ants but they were there and they said there's We haven't seen these ants before. What's going on? And they noticed over a very rapid time period that the ants built up in numbers. They really boomed, exploded in population.
1: How would they have gotten there at the Christmas Island? Just on, what, on some boat or something or uh, or possibly even a researcher's boot or something? Oh, possibly. possibly.
0: So yellow crazy ants actually had been on Christmas Island for decades before that. They were not recorded in 1900 when um, British guy Andrews came over and Describe the flora and fauna of Christmas Island. But then again in 1934, which was the next description of things there, the ant was present. So sometime in that period it was transported there. Yellow crazy ants have been distributed all around the tropics. They're really good travellers. They're your generalists. They're kind of, you know, your feral pigs, your rabbits of the insect world. They eat anything, nest anywhere, travel really well. uh, And so they have been distributed widely. And so building material, boats, plants, things like that.
1: So what happened when you, by the time you got to Christmas Island, how advanced and how... How much of of the island had these yellow ants managed to restructure for their own benefit?
0: They had managed to structure almost 2,000 hectares and in 2001 it was 2,500 hectares of this island that was infested with supercolonies of yellow crazy ants. It It was pretty disastrous and considering a lot of that was National Park, there's endemic species on Christmas Island and has a really unique evolutionary history there.
1: So what was it doing to the crabs then?
0: It was killing them. It was killing them within 24 hours. They could, Ants can kill a crab in, within 24 hours. And they do this by not necessarily actively attacking them, but because the crabs were moving through the, the super colonies, uh, the, the ants obviously, and there was billions of them, swarm all over the crab in defence, you know, get out of my colony, spray acid in their really vulnerable parts, their eyes, their mouth parts. The crabs go blind. They they get stressed, obviously, and they froth at the mouth because they're trying to dilute the acid and get the ants off. And they just literally lay down on the forest floor, dehydrate and die within 24 hours.
1: So what happens to the forest then if there aren't the crabs to organise the forest?
0: So once crabs are taken out of the system... None of the seeds, the seedlings, and the leaf litter—they're usually gone—that create amazingly clear understory of Christmas Island. Uh, that they build up, so you have a very thick leaf litter layer. You have seedlings of rainforest species, but also weed species coming up to create a very a sort of a thick, dense shrub layer underneath, if you like, which is which is you know a foreign concept really on the island.
1: What happens then? <laughs>
0: I mean, this it thing's cascade, on. don't
1: they? I mean, it's just like, what happens? That, well, does that then affect life in the canopy then? Uh, Absolutely.
0: What the yellow crazy ants were doing and how they were doing it, a lot of my research, was by harnessing sugar. They had a lolly shop up in the canopy of the rainforest by taking honeydew from scale insects that were up in the rainforest. <clears throat> and so by the ants building up in numbers, the scale insect build up in numbers as well. Scale insects produce sugar. Ants farm the sugar. By running over the scale insects, they prevent natural enemies getting to the scale. So you've got a really nice positive feedback mechanism, more ants, more scales, more ants, more scales. They all explode in numbers. Scale insects suck phloem out of trees and they can kill whole canopy trees as well. So the cascade of effects was not only in the forest floor with the seedlings and the change of structure and composition of the rainforest, but it was in the canopy with scale insects killing uh, emergent trees and, and important rainforest species as well. And then... On top of that, they facilitated secondary invasions uh, of the giant African land snail um, that was kept out of these forested areas by the red crabs who nibble oh, them up man. for morning tea. Right. And once the crabs are gone, there's nothing to keep them out. So the, the giant African land snail came in. There was weeds that came in. Birds were dying um, because of yellow crazy ant um, invasion as well. So
1: over time, with the yellow crazy ant having you know completely restructured the ecology of this island, would it then essentially burn it up and eventually create a space which, which they couldn't even inhabit?
0: yeah and that's what we're really interested in is these boom and bust cycles of invasive ants um, and what it's we like found, humans aren't they really yeah. In a way? yeah yeah really opportunistic and that's what they did on Christmas Island and in, in fact we watched uh, one super colony really ramp up because it was it was really farming these scale insects the scale insects were booming and at the same time on another part of the island that had an older super colony we, we watched it decline We watched the trees that were ha- um, harboring the scaling seeds die and that sugar resource declined significantly and the whole forest basically completely changed.
1: So what's being done to control the population of yellow crazy ants then on Christmas Island?
0: Well, we worked really closely with the National Park people over there to develop a toxic bait which really targeted only ants. In the super colonies, there was very little else to kill so we were able to uh, drop by helicopter this granulated toxic bait which was at low enough toxin concentration <coughs> that the ants, the worker ants, take this fish meal stuff Back to the queen, and through this trophallaxis process, the food sharing, they, fare, they share the toxin throughout the colony, and within a week, we had ninety-seven and above percent drop in population, and that was in, in a t- week. In a week, wow! Yeah, so that was in two thousand and one over this two thousand five hundred hectares, and now national parks. Now that this has started, they do this every couple of years. We know super colonies um, come and go, they reform, um, and that they and so they bait these things. But they're also looking into biological control, which is another really exciting and novel aspect to controlling invasive ants. I
1: suppose with these things, when you have to attack a single species like that, you've got to fire an arrow, I suppose, but that arrow's got to be really sharp and really fine and just hit that one thing and nothing else. Yeah.
0: there's a lot That's of, the trick, isn't it? It is, and it's difficult. It's really difficult. A lot of my previous research up in North Queensland was looking at what other insects were affected by chemical control programs to control of the papaya fruit fly which was threatening the tropical fruit industry and there's there's been a in agricultural industries that's been their main aim is to target things target them well and reduce non-target effects we think we did a pretty good job on christmas island
1: tell me about what happened on the island of Tokelau in the pacific which is near fiji and samoa when yellow crazy ants started invading that place
0: yellow crazy ants had been on Tokelau again for a number of decades and it was a very different problem over there than it was on Christmas Island. Why? On Christmas Island, it was on Christmas Island it was an environmental problem and it really was totally changing the ecology of the place. On Tokelau, it's a Polynesian culture, very small islets. So Tokelau is the smallest country in the world. It has a total of twelve kilometres squared, an entire nation. But it's made up of three small low lying oceanic atolls and five approximately four or five hundred people live on one islet per atoll. On these islets, yellow crazy ants were building up to such enormous densities, like on Christmas Island, through, no surprises, um, eating honeydew on banana plants and papaya plants uh, and a lot of the rubbish that they had lying around as well but at such densities with a Polynesian outdoor lifestyle it was a people problem and a cultural problem the ants were running over babies and old people in their sleep you know they were all over you they oh my were God. A fish wow. in the village square when you you know with the men go fishing and they put all the fish out in the village square to share out amongst everybody and and when they're there, I mean, just, the fish were covered in yellow crazy ants, in, and it's it's and covered in acid. It's it's a people problem. It wasn't nice. So, were it.
1: there cultural problems for you going in there to try to deal with this this outbreak of crazy yellow crazy ants?
0: Yeah, it was it was a really yeah. tough gig. I didn't live there. I'm not Tokelauan. I'm not Polynesian. Um, I was a white young female scientist who came out uh, by myself. They requested help, so it wasn't like I was coming to say this is what you you know we're here to help you. Oh my goodness, you know we're gonna we're gonna fix this problem. They wanted help, and, and I was the person who. had had the expertise to do that the culture there is wonderful and it's all based around family you know coming as a female scientist from a university in New New Zealand meant nothing to them but I was lucky and in hindsight one of the best things I ever did was go there with my boyfriend who's now my current partner on my first trip and I became Jeremy's wife and on my second trip I took my mum um all right so you had the family interaction yeah so I was then You know Pete's daughter. I was I was never really cursed to scientist. I had to be involved in a family, and that was great. And once that was kind of established, I could keep going back and made great relationships over there, um, and was able to do research a lot, a lot easier. It was great.
1: In the end, how was this ant infestation completely eradicated from this island?
0: Well, I don't know if I'd use the word eradicated. It's still there in very low numbers. I took the same tech- bait technology over there that we used on Christmas Island, however. Just before we would to put the main uh, part of the, the baiting program out, um, I was in New Zealand and I heard that there was a cyclone coming near near Taikala and I was like, oh no. I mean, my first worry, concern obviously was for the people. And in fact, the entire country at any, at one point in time was entirely under the Pacific Ocean. So it's only about two metres high and their houses are up, they have water tanks under their concrete houses and their houses are up two storeys. But- a tid- like the cyclone caused a tidal wave and sea level increase to the point where the entire country was completely inundated with water.
1: <laughs> the so, entire the entire the all these atolls were yeah, there completely submerged underwater. underwater for a bit.
0: Yep. And so it, what about their it houses? flooded the ants. Well, the ha- most of the houses down I mean it was completely trashed. Um the island was very affected. People and things things were floating off into the ocean. Uh, Tokelau is lucky enough to be uh given aid from New Zealand. It's technically in a external territory of New Zealand, and they don't have their own water source. So actually what they have is is concrete houses with a water tank on the bottom of it and the living quarters is upstairs. So the water rose to, you know, the lower level kind of areas. So they were safe upstairs in their concrete houses. But they were looking down on their country, submerged in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And,
1: and what did that do to the ant population?
0: Well, it completely decimated it's it. Sort of drowned <laughs> it. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I don't know whether they just drowned, literally, or they floated <laughs> off into, a, you know, another <laughs> island. I, unfortunately, I assume that some of them hitched a ride on a coconut plant or something to another island. But
1: What, what do they make of what happened with all that? What's their attitude to that?
0: They're a little bit um, superstitious in a way. So a lot of them were, well, it was a sign. It was meant to be. God sent the, the tsunami to get rid of the ants. A lot of them thought that. Um, the people that I worked with over there were also grateful, I think, that we had started this toxic baiting program and that if it ever happened again and the super colonies came back that they had this toxic bait to do it as well. But, yeah, that was... It was a sign. It was meant to be, apparently.
1: Australia's experienced so many invasions from ants from outside of the country. Is there anything left of the native ant populations in Australia?
0: Oh, yeah. Huge. In uh, Over 1,300 species of ants in Australia, native and endemic to Australia.
1: Do, do the Argentine ants and the other ones compete with those ants?
0: They do. So in areas where invasive ants are in Australia, there's disastrous effects. And in the temperate areas, Melbourne, Adelaide, Perth, Argentine ants um, have outcompeted a lot of native ants where they are. Argentine ants, again, build up in huge numbers, lots of queens, big Worker populations, you know, fight out everything else. Uh, red imported fire ants in Brisbane outcompete a lot of the native ants around here. So it'll be interesting to see when they do control red-imported fire ants down to a level where other ants can start coming back, what's actually happened, and I know that there's research into that now. In Cairns, uh, yellow crazy ants and electric ants, um, or it's called the little fire ant elsewhere, they also decimate native ant populations where they are. And in Cairns, yellow crazy ants are in the World Heritage, right next to the World Heritage Area. So it's, it's quite concerning, you could say.
1: Is, is there a debate in the scientific community about this? There's some people that would say... Well, these native ants just aren't up to the pace of twenty-first century life, and that these new ants that are coming in are more robust. And this is what happens in nature, anyway. I mean, it's not—it's not, it's not uh, different creatures have been invading different territories over time, and not just through human interaction. Was there, is there debate about that?
0: Yeah, look, there is, and I, that comes down to a bit of a subjective. I'm a human as well, really, with your perception over that. I think scientists now totally agree that the impacts that invasive ants have aren't necessarily only environmental; they're agricultural. They undermine a lot of agriculture agricultural crops they kill animals they kill pets and they also invade human areas where they farm honeydew and kill plants through that way as well red imported fire ants tropical fire ants things that sting they have medical implications as well and so it's really the economics of invasive ants that are making most people say it's it's not okay
1: are you still fascinated by ants after all these years having been had them swarm all over you um, fill your boots with acid and everything else
0: Absolutely. In fact, every new ant that I look at under the microscope at the moment fascinates me even more. I don't think I will ever get sick of them. Look, I'm wearing an ant in amber and one in a little vial around my neck. And I should say,
1: you're wearing an ant's (laughs) T-shirt and you've brought me an ant's tea towel. So I I suppose that was a bit of a silly question on my part, wasn't it, (laughs) Kirsty? It's been so good to speak with you, Kirsty, and fascinating as well. Thank you so much.
0: Well, thank you for having me, Richard.
1: Dr Kirsty Abbott is now working at the Museum and Art Gallery of the Northern Territory, where she's their Head of Science thank you for listening to this episode from our summer podcast series you can find the rest of the series and thousands
0: more conversations on the ABC listen app